The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Friday, November 9th, 1888. East London. Paul woke late to the sound of his dog, Rusty, barking at the foot of his bed. He squinted through heavy eyelids at the clock hanging crooked on his yellowing apartment wall. Half past ten in the morning. He'd overslept again and was likely to get an earful from his boss. He cursed as he pulled on his boots and headed for the door, not even bothering to tuck in his shirt. He scrambled up the stairs to the door to the street, taking two steps at a time, Rusty following close behind, as always. He flung the door open and stepped onto the sidewalk, breathing in the familiar, damp London air. As he hurried down Dorset Street, he began coming up with possible excuses to give to his boss when he arrived to work. Mum was sick, had to bring her to the doctor. Used that one yesterday. Dog was sick, had to clean a mess he left. He glanced down at Rusty, who was happily prancing along beside him. That wouldn't fly either. He pulled his pocket watch out from his jacket and looked down at it. Before he had a chance to get a proper read of the time, he collided with a woman who carelessly wandered out of Miller's court. Sorry, ma'am, he said, catching her elbow before she spilled onto the cobblestone. She didn't say anything, just stared vaguely in his general direction, but seemingly not distinctly focused on anything. Paul recognized her just then. Mary Jane, he said. What are you doing out at this hour, he asked. Rusty began growling uncharacteristically and took a defensive stance against Paul's leg. Paul shook him off. Now Mary focused her gaze on him and smirked vaguely. Her skin was pale and lips dry and cracked. She looked like hell. This hour, or... She began to ask but trailed off as the focus of her gaze seemed to wander again. My throat hurts, she added, looking up into the dense fog that hung low in the sky that morning. All right, Mary, I'm I'm late for work. I'll see you around, he said as he walked on, leaving her standing on the sidewalk in an apparent drunken daze. Paul eventually got to work, where he did in fact receive an earful from his boss, and the day dragged on worse than usual. It was dark out when he finally punched his time card and headed out to the pub for his usual nightcap. He ordered his pint and grabbed the newspaper. It was today's paper, November 9th. The image on the front page sent a chill down his spine. The headline read, Jack the Ripper claims fifth victim. Woman brutally hacked to death. And pictured was Mary Jane Kelly, the woman he'd seen that morning. Paul stood from his bar stool and signaled to the bartender. When was this? Paul asked. The bartender looked grim. Ripper got merry early this morning, before the sun came up. Bloody shame, he said, and went back to cleaning his glass. Paul felt his blood run cold as he sat back on his stool. He was certain he spoke to Mary that morning, but it was hours after she'd been murdered. He shook his head. It couldn't have been, but it must have been her ghost. I'm Dave Wilkins from the Hometown Ghost Stories podcast, and this is Talk is Jericho. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and it's the first official Friday of summer. So let's start it off with Duff McKagan and the much-anticipated, highly decorated joke the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. I hope everybody's doing well. Again this week, we have a special surprise. My wife, Susan Holmes McKagan, telling the joke. What do you got? 
What's up? What goes in hard and comes out soft? What? Bubblegum. Hello. Hello. Thanks to Susan Holmes McKagan for delivering the laughs much more than her deadbeat husband, Duff. <laughs> uh, Susan always on the road with her hubby, uh, Duff uh, McKagan and Guns N' Roses. Band is out all summer. Dates at ticket information uh, at gunsandroses.com. And Fozzie's next gig, Spotlight on London, Friday, August 25th at the O2 Forum, Kentish Town. Massive Wagons in the Chris Barris Band will be joining us. Go to FozzyRock.com for tickets. We are kicking off AEW Wembley Stadium weekend with Fozzie's biggest show ever at the O2 Forum in Kentish Town. And if that's not enough music to rock your summer, Quarantine is going out for a short run as well. That's right, our 80s Kiss non-makeup supergroup is finally hitting the road. It's me, PJ Farley, Kent Slusher, Joe McGinnis, and Charlie Pata. We're out next week starting June 29th in Pittsburgh at Jurgles, Columbus, Ohio at King of Hearts on June 30th, and Franklin, Ohio at JD Legends on July 1st. We're doing a killer VIP meet and greet as well. We'll play a private sound check for you answer some questions, take some pictures, and sign some autographs, just go to quarantine.com. That's quarantine with a K for ticket information. All right, the boys from hometown ghost stories return today. Rob Coakley, Jesse Wilkins, and his brother Dave Wilkins. If you haven't checked out their hometown ghost stories podcast and live show, you should. They're live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. They're getting bigger and bigger every time we talk to them. And, of course, we can listen to the hometown ghost stories podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So today, we're breaking down the infamous Jack the Ripper case. But we're not just analyzing his five canonical victims and breaking down evidence to determine which the many suspects could be the actual killer, but we're also digging into all of the hauntings associated with Jack the Ripper's suspected victims. It's such a fascinating case that you will never likely hear uh, a solution for. It's probably never going to be solved, but the four of us are going to share who we think the real Jack the Ripper is using all the clues and the suspects that we're going to discuss and you can see if you agree after hearing the evidence. So here we go. Hometown Ghost Stories return with the history of Jack the Ripper, the murders, and the hauntings right now on Talk is Jericho. All right. So probably I think maybe the third time or fourth time we got the uh, the boys here from Hometown Ghost Stories. And every time uh, we do a show, you guys keep climbing up the ladder. And I know the first time we were in the basement of a venue, uh, somewhere like in Poughkeepsie or something like that. Providence. Providence. Providence, yeah. All the P's, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And then uh, that, then the next time we, we had the amazing uh, graphics here and the neon signs in the back, the stage set up behind you. But now you just mentioned, Rob, that you guys just did a TV pilot. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, TV is like air quotes at today because it's probably more for like a streaming service if sure. it gets picked up. But yeah, we got to, we filmed a TV pilot and... Uh, we're hoping more people get to see our faces. I mean, that's really cool considering that you guys, I mean, I don't even remember. It was probably about a year and a half ago when you guys first started, maybe two years tops. Yeah. So it's been moving along pretty quickly for you guys, which is great to see. Yeah, it's it's good. And we have you to thank for that. And now we get to uh, do an episode with you again and leave you on another cliffhanger so that you have to bring us back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm expecting my 10% uh, royalties in the mail when that pilot gets picked up. So, um, but yeah, we always kind of have some interesting thoughts about what we want to do. We decided this time to do a show uh, about Jack the Ripper, uh, not just uh, the, Jack the Ripper, the, the murders that he committed. We're going to talk about the theories on who might have actually been Jack the Ripper. And then the tie in with, of course, the ghost elements. We're going to talk about the hauntings involved with Jack the Ripper. So um, you guys are always well organized and you got your uh, shtick down. So I'm going to hand the driver's wheel over to you guys as we delve into this very interesting, mysterious and unsolved to this day, correct? Unsolved uh, mystery as to who Jack the Ripper really was. It's going to change today, though, because we're going to solve it. Yeah, we're going to yeah. solve it. Today, we're going to get it? <laughs> we're going to get it. All right. None of us are going to agree, but one of us should be right. <laughs> so to start this story, we have to travel back to the late summer, early fall in Whitechapel, England, which is in London, and kind of talk about what's going on there. It's a very poverty-stricken area, lots of crime there, and the Whitechapel murders begin. So... The Whitechapel murders encompass the Jack the Ripper killings. There's 11 Whitechapel murders. There's five Jack the Ripper canonical victims. But this city is already on edge. And on August 31st, around 3.30 a.m., a man named Charles Cross was walking to work down Bucks Row when he comes across something. And it's the 
body of a woman laying off to the side. And quickly after that, a guy named Robert Paul shows up and he waves him over and says, do you think she's alive or dead, basically? And they're looking at her and they're not sure. The main problem for them, both of them want to get to work. They don't want to deal with it. But they find a police officer, flag him down, kind of tell him what's going on. And by the time that police officer gets over, another police officer had shown up and they find her throat basically cut to the spine. Wow. It's very, very brutal. They get her to the coroner and then they find out as they kind of start looking over the body a little more that not only was her throat cut, the body had been cut and her bowels were starting to protrude from those cuts. Is a very, very different than a lot of the other killings there. And as soon as this happens, the entire city of Whitechapel kind of goes on edge. So it was a very vicious murder is what you're saying with the deep cuts and just kind of the, the violent way that she was basically filleted right. and ripped apart. And I will say one thing too, Fozzie actually has a two-part sonnet about Jack the Ripper oh. and it's called Whitechapel 1888 and To Kill a Stranger. So there you go. I've written the song about Jack the Ripper. That's how much I'm into this topic. So. Love it. Yeah, this this first victim was Mary Ann Nichols. She sometimes went by Polly Nichols. And like we said, it was very vicious. There was two murders committed around the time before this. One of them seems like it was probably a street gang that was doing it for a robbery. But the other one, a woman was stabbed about 36, 37 times. She's not considered a canonical victim of Jack the Ripper, but they're wondering if maybe that was some of his earlier work. But this is when we start to get into the canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and just to set the tone in Whitechapel, this is a very, very rough area at the time. There is crime. You have the poverty is brutal over here. You have families that are living in the streets. You have people who are stacked seven, eight people, nine, ten in like these little single room apartments. It's dirty. It's disgusting. It smells. It's unbelievably dark. And that plays a huge role in this. So there's no electric street lamps. There's barely any lighting whatsoever. So it's just an unbelievably dark time. Everybody's drunk. Most of the women are sex workers. Most of the men are jobless and drunk. And everyone's drunk. A lot of gin, a lot of beer. <laughs> and just to make sure you understand, everybody's actually drunk. <laughs> have, yeah. Have you ever um, tried to figure out where the term hangover came from, Chris? I have not. Well, I, I feel that you do. Ha- you have, though. So while researching this case, we kind of figured out where that came from. So we were talking about how poor people were and trying to find places to sleep. One of the methods of sleeping was you would sit like on this bench generally, and they would put this rope in front of it, and you would hang over the rope while you were sleeping. And that's where the term hangover came from. And the most brutal part of this is once they deemed that the time was up for people sleeping, they'd come cut the rope and everyone would fall right on their face. Oh, wow. On the floor. And mind you, this is a service that you had to pay for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, say, we'll just say pennies, but I think it was pence or, or top pence or something like that was the currency at the time. But for like one or two, you could sit on that bench and sleep over the rope. If you only had one, you could sit on the bench, but they wouldn't even allow you to fall asleep. You just had shelter for the night, but there'd be a guy, I'm, I'm assuming he had a stick and he would just poke you with a stick if you started falling asleep. Like, no, 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 <laughs> you didn't pay enough. You don't get to sleep. Right. And then they had another one. They had these like little boxes on the floor, which are basically coffins. And for, I think it was like three pence or something like that. I might be getting these, these numbers off, but you could sleep inside this disgusting box. I mean, filthy insects, dirty, and you're basically sleeping inside of a coffin. And then, you know, if you had the real money, then you could get a room for the night. Or if you just had some money, you could actually rent out the corner of somebody else's hotel room for the night, which is a really weird scenario. So, yeah, that, that was kind of the uh, the conditions. And basically, people would just try to scrounge up enough money to be able to sleep, you know, in some sort of shelter in one of these situations at some point during the night. Next time we come to your Fozzie show, we might have to sublet the corner of your room. So just uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. So um, that's kind of the initial tale here of the, of the murder. So what are the... Are the cops instantly kind of searching for this guy or was there so many murders that it, it was just kind of more of a random first time kill? Well, we're, we're talking 1888 when what do they have to go off of? They don't have DNA tracing. They don't know, They don't even know where to begin, basically. Right. The interesting part about this case that I think gets overlooked, and I think we kind of want to hit on this as we go through each one. The hauntings almost begin immediately after this from each victim. So I think Dave has some info on the hauntings of Mary Ann Nichols. Yeah. So after she was murdered in the area of Whitechapel, locals started claiming that they would see unusual activity in the area where the murder occurred. 
So actually, the famous author Elliot O'Donnell described seeing what he quoted as a huddled figure on Durward Street lying in the gutter. Now, Durward Street is actually what they changed the name of Buck's Row to after the murder. So Durward Street, allegedly this figure of a woman lying in the gutter appears and emits light, which is a weird detail. Now, Jesse mentioned earlier that there were basically no electric street lights. And if there were any lights, it was like a dim flickering lantern light. So for people to actually see this thing emitting light is very unusual. It's not uncommon for hauntings, because if you believe that hauntings are just residual energy left over, then it could be the reason it glows. But it's definitely a peculiar thing to see. Hmm. Interesting how that happens right away. And to Dave's point, they changed a lot of the names of these streets after these murders occurred. We can get into the second murder, which is Annie Chapman. And on September 8th, so not too far away, a little over a week later, Around 6 a.m., the body of 47-year-old Annie Chapman was found by a, a man on his way to work, much like the first one. She was separated from her husband. She was like selling fake flowers. She was she was also a sex worker. Her murder was similar to that of Polly Nichols, except it gets a little more gruesome. This time, he actually cuts her open, takes her insides, throws it over her, I believe it was her right shoulder. And he takes some of her organs. Oh, my gosh. And they don't know exactly what he was doing with those. But he was doing this relatively quick. And again, we talked about the police. They have no DNA. They have not a lot to go on. The one thing that they thought basically was that he was either in the medical field because of the precision that he did some of this on. And there is debate on that. Mm -hmm. Or he was some sort of butcher or something like that. So that was where their first sort of suspect slide. Well, it even says too in your notes that he actually took her womb. He cut out her womb. Right. So this is a very vicious, violent, psycho killer here. Right. And it's unlike anything people had ever seen. And this is where we start to get the perfect storm because obviously there was serial killers before Jack the Ripper. But this is the first time that the cases for this started hitting the newspaper and the newspaper were starting to put their own spin on it a little bit. So it was called yellow journalism at the time where they would just kind of editorialize some of the details and really sensationalize it. And it wasn't just London. This case was starting to get tracked all around the world here in America. Other countries were following it. So it was the first serial killer case that people were like grasping onto. And we still do it to this day. It was really like the first case of people being obsessed with true crime. Yeah. It was just everyone was talking about it all over the world. So would this be kind of like, you know, I'm assuming back then they would have daily papers and it would be kind of all the hot front page news, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with, I believe the year before the first Sherlock Holmes book had come out. So I think that there was just this rave about being a master detective and people wanted to see this case through. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but yeah, people were really jumping on board following this case. Yeah. Just to, to stress the fact that they really believed and experts still believe to this day that whoever this killer was, and it was apparent in the first and second kills, mostly the second one, that this this guy had to have some sort of anatomical knowledge. He had to have some some sort of background in the medical field. And it's a pretty broad thing back in the day. So you had, for example, we talked about like barber surgeons on the show a few times. So people who were barbers would also do small surgeries inside the barber shop, which is why actually when you look at the barber signs, those little things that they have outside, they're they're blue and red and they spin, right? Right. So the red in back in the day meant that they would also do surgeries there. So barbers actually had some sort of knowledge when it comes to these surgeries. Really? Yeah. It's kind of a wild thing. So you just, you know, you go get a haircut, maybe have an organ <laughs> removed, whatever you want to do. We're just learning a lot today here on uh, <laughs> Talk is Jericho. <laughs> it was a strange thing, but I mean, we, we already talked about how dark this place was. It was basically pitch black as soon as the sun set. He had to work unbelievably fast. They think a lot of these killings happened in you know under 15 minutes. And he's making these cuts that expert surgeons would not be able to do where he knows where to open up, what to peel back, what to cut to release certain organs that he's going for, whether it's a kidney or a uterus or whatever it is that he's removing from these victims. And he's doing it unbelievably fast, clean, and efficient. To be fair, an actual surgeon would be hindered by the fact that they have to keep their patient alive. That's a good point. Semantics, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, do you, what is your point on that, Dave? Well, Jesse was saying that it would take an actual surgeon would have a hard time removing these organs in a hospital room shows the fact that this person would have to have 
a medical background because he uh. was able to do it in a dark alley. My point is, but he's not trying to keep the person alive. So he doesn't have to be that precise. Right. He's just trying to carve out whatever organs he's looking for. Yeah. Right. And who knows if he was getting the ones he wanted, right? Right. And I guess with the with the doctors, it's also not a speed contest. So for him to do it really fast, it's like, no, no one's like, look how fast I did the surgery. It's like, wait, but did you go do a good job? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so just going by your notes here, tell me what, what's the dear boss letter? Uh, it arrives at the central news agency. Is it some evidence here? Because this is after the second murder that this, that this comes out. Well, so the Dear Boss letter comes, and basically, I can read it real quick. It goes, Yes. So first, let's say who this was sent to. This was sent to a Mr. Lusk, who was the president of basically a vigilante committee that had been formed to look for Jack the Ripper, who was not called that yet. We'll see why in a second. At night, they were trying to keep their businesses open and stuff like that, and they were worried that this was going to hinder them. So instead of just relying on the police, they were also trying to make sure that the streets were as safe as possible. They were walking around trying to keep the women safe. Interesting fact, this is where the term sneakers come from as well. Because back in the day, people had these shoes that walked on the cobblestone. You could hear them real loud. And sneakers came out. And that's why sneakers are called sneakers, because they were a lot quieter. And they thought they were going to be able to sneak up on Jack the Ripper. Mm. So the Dear Boss letter says, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. We'll come back to leather apron later. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work that last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. And it goes on like that. And he signs that letter. He says, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. And this is where the name is born. And the police and the newspapers weren't sure they wanted to print it. They decided to print it to see if anyone could match the handwriting to someone that they knew. And what ended up happening was this opened the floodgates for hundreds and thousands of knockoff Jack the Ripper letters to come in. Of course. And now you're wasting even more time having to go through every single letter. Yeah. So he he actually coined his own name of Jack the Ripper. If you believe he wrote it. Right. If Yeah, if this one's legitimate. I mean, they, they were, at one point, they were receiving a thousand letters a week from people claiming to be Jack the Ripper. And a lot of it was like religiously driven. And a lot of it was just complete rambles. I was reading through a bunch of them today. Really strange letters. I don't know if it's as prevalent now, but the, kind of a nickname, I think old style, maybe from the last 30 or 40 years, was calling somebody Jack the Lad. It'd be like somebody like was like he pulled a lot of chicks. He's oh, he's a real Jack the Lad. So I wonder if that term was around in the 1800s and he's not Jack the Lad, he's Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Oh. Why Jack? That could be a reason for it too. That sounds like it adds up. I, I hadn't heard that term, but yeah, Jack the Lad, yeah. Jack of all trades. Maybe like it just it seems like a turn of phrase that was relatively common throughout time. So that makes a lot of sense. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So let's continue on with some of these other murders. Are they all pretty much the same style where he's just completely butchering the, the, these women on the streets? And also, too, why are women still walking in the streets? You you would think that there would be kind of mass hysteria at this point. They have no choice. Yeah. This is their only – a lot of these women who were sex workers at the time, this was obviously the last – the worst case scenario. Sure. So they don't have any other choice. If they weren't – if they didn't have to, I'm sure they wouldn't be. Yeah, there weren't a lot of options out there for them. Basically, they, they could try to find work sewing – different things but still you had to have the stuff to do it so it a lot of them is just you know they hit rock bottom and this was kind of they had no choice right yeah that's how they made their money so that that letter was received on september 27th the next event happens on september 30th and this is kind of an interesting one because this isn't just one murder this is a double event on september 30th in the early hours a man is driving his little horse and buggy back to the area that he lives and his horse pulls up and like kind of skirts to the left. And he's like, oh, what the hell is this horse doing? And he kind of sees something in like the roadway. 
So he gets off the horse and he lights a match. And as he lights the match, he sees the figure of a woman on the ground and he can tell that her throat's cut. And he was so close to home, he was actually afraid that this was his wife. Hmm. So he starts running into buildings and trying to make sure it's not his wife. And this is Elizabeth Stride. They called her Long Liz. The difference with her is basically just her throat was cut. There was no other like mutilation to her body or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they think what happened was this guy approaching on this horse and carriage actually startled Jack the Ripper, like the horse saw the actual Jack the Ripper. And when he was spotted, he ran around the corner. He was probably 10 feet away from the guy that came up. And if the guy had actually looked around, would have caught him. So he had cut the throat and wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. So he kind of hightailed it. And a few hours later, they find the body of Catherine Eddowes. She was cut up worse than any of the other victims at this point. So he cuts her throat back to her spine again, cuts open her insides, throws them over the shoulder, steals one of her kidneys. Oh my gosh. Cuts off a piece of her ear, which is interesting because in the Dear Boss letter, he did mention cutting off an ear. So that's why they think there might be some relevance to that letter. Basically just mutilated this body worse than any of the other ones so far. So he might be getting a little more comfortable. And I would say he's getting real comfortable if he's doing a double murder within an hour of each other. That's incredible. Right. Exactly. It's just a frenzy. Yeah. And it was a frenzy for the people of Whitechapel too. It is. They were looking at that first body. They were like standing around it, staring at her body. And then people are like yelling, he did another murder down at Mitre Square. And they all run there to see the other body. It seems to be the general consensus that this was a double event. This was a double murder, but I'm, I actually don't think that he killed the first one. Here's why. There was a few pieces of evidence that kind of pull me away from it. Number one is the weapon doesn't match up. She did get her throat slit with a knife, but due to the evidence, they think that it was actually a duller blade and a shorter blade. So Jack the Ripper typically used a knife that was between like six to 10 inches, they think, and this blade was between four or five inches. So it was a shorter, duller blade due to the cuts on her neck. Hmm. Also, she spent the whole night, witnesses saw her with a man, and basically this guy was kissing all over her. He was trying, trying to get her back to the room, but she just didn't seem interested all night. So clearly she wasn't looking to make money that night. She just wasn't all that interested in that this guy. Eventually, one witness claimed that she basically said, like, it's not going to happen tonight. And he basically gave up and walked away. What they think probably happened was that there was a guy that she was regularly seeing. And this guy kept coming back and seeing her. He would pay her money sometimes, leave her money, pay for her room or whatever. And they think that she was waiting for him, which is why she didn't go back with this customer. And then basically, he met up with her. They got in a fight and he slit her throat. And it just so happened that that same night, Jack the Ripper actually killed somebody down the street. So I think it's just a coincidence. And I think the things added up where the murder weapon doesn't add up. She was obviously not taking customers that night. And the fact that the body wasn't mutilated or anything like that, I don't, I don't think this is actually Jack the Ripper. Well, it's interesting too. It says, especially for the Eddowes case, that she was seen at 1.30 with a guy. Three different people saw her with a man. At 1.45, the police constable came across her mutilated body. So in 15 minutes, yeah, he did all of that. He works very quickly this killer here. Yes. She was actually in the police station that night because of like public drunkenness. And they released her at one o'clock when she was finally able to walk on her own accord. She made a joke as she was leaving the police station, like basically like, Oh, I hope Jack the Ripper doesn't get me blah, blah, blah with one of the other police officers. Half hour later, she was seen with the man 15 minutes after that. Absolutely mutilated. It's crazy how fast he was working here. Let's talk about the from hell letter. So this is one of the more infamous of the letters that was sent. It's a lot shorter, and there's a big reason why they think that this could have been sent from the actual Jack the Ripper, because it came with something. And after I read it, I'll tell you what it came with. It was titled, From Hell. Mr. Lust, sir, I sent you half the kidney. I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. And sorry, the first letter wasn't sent to Mr. Lusk. It was the original Dear Boss letter was sent to the boss of the newspaper agency. This is the one that was sent to Mr. Lusk. But this one was sent to Mr. Lusk with a human kidney. Right off the bat, we talk about Catherine Eddowes missing a kidney. Kind of 
ties together there, right? That he's now sending human kidneys to other people. So yeah, not just everybody has one of those laying around. It was also from the same side. It was the same kidney that was missing from Catherine Eddowes. So technically most people have two of them laying around, but that's semantics. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) So, so he's actually sending a piece of the kidney. Yep. It's so something from like every horror movie ever. It really is. Right. And it's very sensationalized. I think that's why a lot of people take this one as probably one of the only authentic letters that actually came from Jack the Ripper. He also didn't sign it as Jack the Ripper. So I think the first letter, the Dear Boss letter, and many of the other ones, I think those were made up by somebody that probably worked at the newspaper. Reason being, number one is it was kind of all over the place. It coined the term Jack the Ripper. It did all this kind of stuff. And the other reason is that whoever wrote that letter knew to send it to a news agency, not a newspaper. The news agency, their job is to create these stories and sell them to the different newspapers. So only somebody that had like knowledge of the inner workings of the newspaper business would know to send a story to the news agency instead of just sending it straight to the newspaper. Before we get to the fifth victim, because the fifth victim is a whole nother thing, we should probably hit on some of the hauntings associated with the second, third, and fourth victims. What's interesting about this is that all of the victims have hauntings tied to them, which I was a little surprised when I was looking into this. Hmm. I, was, I knew that there were some hauntings tied in. I didn't know that there was going to be a haunting with every single victim. So Annie Chapman, the second victim, is said to be the most active of all of them. Her apparition is spotted in numerous occasions in the area where she was murdered on Hanbury Street. And in the 20th century, a guy known as Mr. Chapman, completely unrelated to the victim, he lived at 29 Hanbury Street, which is the address where the murder took place. So over the course of the several years that he lived there, particularly in the early morning hours during the autumn months, he would witness a man and a woman walking along the street just before disappearing into thin air. So he'd see a woman walking and then like a shadow man following her and both would just disappear into thin air, which is very creepy. To this day, she's still seen or is this three years ago? This particular instance was seen in, it was the, I think it was the 1930s when this guy named Mr. Chapman lived at that okay. address and this was his account. But still, yeah, 40, 50 years later still, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then on one occasion, a man was walking down Hanbury Street, a different guy, early one morning before the sun came up. And as he passed the area where Annie Chapman was murdered nearly a half a century prior, he heard what he described as the sound of a screaming woman being murdered. Hmm. So he rushed to the sound in hopes to stop whatever crime he thought was going on. The screams grew louder as he approached. And as he turned the corner to where the screams were coming from, there was absolutely nothing there. So the disembodied screams echoing through the streets. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's interesting with the, the, and we haven't talked about Mary Kelly yet, the, the final murder, but every single murder, like you said, has a ghost uh, attached to it. So all of these souls are wandering yeah. the face of the earth for a little while. Exactly. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about Mary Kelly because she was the final victim. And once again, this is November 9th, which is... 82 years before I was born. Um, I was born on November 9th. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> this is on November 9th. And so the first murder, like you said, was August 31st. So all of this has basically happened within the course of 10 weeks or so. Right. Under three months. Under three months. Yeah. One murder every two weeks is basically what we've got going on here. Which was, to me, the craziest thing when we were researching this case. Because I, you hear the Jack the Ripper case, and until you really dive into it, you don't realize how quick it happened yeah this is theoretically the last one it's the last canonical victim whether you believe he continued doing stuff elsewhere is here or there but there are the five canonical so under three months is a very very short time to cause this amount of chaos basically mary kelly on november 9th is believed to be the last victim and her case is quite different because she wasn't found in the streets she actually had this like little room that she was renting out that morning 
the guy that collects the rent was coming over to get the rent from her for that day or that week. And he's knocking on the door and no one's answering. And then he looks in a window that's broken and he sees this horrifying, horrifying sight. And he runs and he gets the police. And basically once they finally open the door to this, not only is she her throat slash, like we've talked about before, she is literally ripped apart. So he took his time with this one. Like, wow, she's ripped open. Her heart's missing. She there's chunks of flesh all over the place. And this is one of those things where like, you know, gold star rating. Don't go look for this. If you're squeamish, you can actually find some of the crime scene photos from this. Wow. And it's tough to look at, honestly. It's really, yeah, it's really, really tough to see because you're, it's so bad. You don't know what you're looking at at first. And then once you see it, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Because he, he just tore her apart, took out stuff, like left everything everywhere. Her heart was taken. Like I said, it's real gruesome. And so basically he had the time to do what he wanted to do when he was doing this on the streets. He was doing it very quick. This time he finally did it in a room. It was like almost a month after the last, that, that double event. Personally, I think he was kind of scoping out. He knew what he wanted to do and he was trying to find someone that he could do it within the room is what I think happened here. Yeah. I think he was also waiting for this day because this was, I believe it was called mayor's day where basically all the police would have been preoccupied going to this one event they would not have been patrolling the streets as heavily as they were on other days, especially since they were basically scouring the streets at all, all hours. They had warned all the women. It's like, listen, like if you're out past midnight, we can't protect you. It was just, everyone was basically on lockdown and on full alert for Jack the Ripper and the police were all over the place. But on this day in particular, the the police would have been preoccupied. So I think that's why he waited for this day. And also to kind of let the, the heat of the situation calm down a little bit. Right. But he went nuts on this one. There was a few elements to the crime scene that were very different. Obviously, this one was indoors, like Rob mentioned. There was messages written on the wall. The heart was straight up missing. He had been burning something. And for some reason, this is still a mystery to this day. Like he had the the fire in, in the fireplace roaring so hot. They don't know what he was burning. They found pieces, you know, like evidence that he had burned some of her clothes that were in the fire or her roommate's clothes that were in the fireplace. But the fire was so hot that it actually melted the handle off of the tea kettle. It's just one of these weird mysteries where they don't know what exactly he was burning in that fireplace. It's interesting too, because it's one of the details that it says is that when um, whoever came to check on Mary Kelly, the only way he could identify her body was by her ears and her eyes. Right. Everything else was so mutilated and messed up. They couldn't recognize anything else on her body. Yeah, with him and I believe with Catherine Edo's body, they had he had cut off the nose. And that's kind of an interesting detail because at the time, or at least he snipped off the tip of the nose. Yeah. Not only was everybody drunk, not only was it really dark, but like everyone had syphilis. It's like this was just all over the place in, in the East End. And one of the conditions in the later stages of syphilis is your nose could actually fall off. So it's believed that he had clipped off the nose of these women to indicate that they may have been syphilitic and that's just one of the theories as to why he was clipping off the nose, just kind of identify who they were. It's also more evidence that he had some sort of knowledge as a doctor. I remember watching a movie when we used to watch a lot of horror movies in like, you know, high school and junior high school. It's called, I think it was called Jack the Ripper and Jack Palance, I think played Jack the Ripper. And I vividly remember one of the scenes where he like cuts off a woman's breast. Mm. That's the type of stuff that the real Jack the Ripper is doing here. He's just cutting off everything and, cutting into everything and just kind of like you mentioned, just taking his time and doing whatever he wants with these women's bodies. So yeah, it definitely happened with the, with Mary Kelly. So some of the news reports had, had reported that her organs and her body parts were thrown all about the room, but apparently that wasn't the case there. He had kind of just stacked him in a pile and put him over her shoulder like he did with some of the other victims, but there was blood all over the room. It was a terrifying crime scene to say the least. And her hauntings might actually be some of the scariest of all the hauntings associated. The Mary Kelly hauntings? Yeah. Well, how, how do you mean? So in the days following Mary Kelly's murder, several witnesses claimed to have actually spoken with her in person hours after her death. So obviously they couldn't have spoken to her in person because she was dead at the time that they claimed to have seen her. So that really just leaves two possibilities. Either A, they were mistaken and they were speaking to someone else. Or B, they were talking to her ghost, which is terrifying because a couple of the witnesses claimed that when they were talking to her that morning, 
that she seems kind of out of it. And she was saying things that didn't really make a lot of sense. So at the time they said she was probably drunk because she was always drunk. But if you look at it retrospectively, she had been dead. So if they were speaking with her ghost and maybe the ghost was going through. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. So it's it's so the theory is that if this is an imprint and the ghost is just going through a cycle that it had gone through in its life, then somebody would have got up and had a conversation with this ghost and the ghost would have just been saying something that made no sense. So it, it does kind of add up if you think about it. Yeah, and it's not the first time we've seen ghosts appear, right? Right after the death, we covered um, for a Celebrity Hauntings episode, Elvis Presley. After he died, his neighbor, before his neighbor heard the news, he had a full-blown conversation with him that morning, like right outside, and then he found out that he had died hours before that. So it's not uncommon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So why do you feel that the murder stopped there? There's a number of reasons and we'll get into, we can start getting into some of the theories of who it was. Well, yeah, let's get into that stage of it and why it stopped and who, 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 who some of the suspects were. I think we're all going to have to battle over who we think was the best actual suspect for this, because I think we're all kind of on different pages and I'm going to let Dave actually start first because the whole premise behind doing this show was the last show we had, we talked about the theory of H.H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper. So that's kind of why we're doing this. And Dave is compelled to believe that H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Sort of. Oh, you're backtracking now. No, I'm not. I'm saying the exact same thing. <laughs> hey, if you're not going to fully commit to this, I'll fully commit to this. I'll take H.H. Holmes if you want me to. I love this one. There is a lot of evidence that suggests that H.H. Holmes is actually Jack the Ripper. I assume you know who H.H. Holmes is. But if your listeners don't, he was a prolific serial killer right around the same time in the 1890s in Chicago, he opened up what they refer to as the murder mansion, where he would abduct people, kill them, and then harvest their organs and sell them. This guy was known for doing tons of fraud his whole life. And he had the police basically combing through every aspect of his life, which can be accounted for, except for the four months that the Jack the Ripper killings were going on. There is This guy went completely off the grid. There is no account for his whereabouts during this time. The only thing that you could suggest where he was, was from a ship log after the last murder of the Ripper killings, there was an H. Holmes that got off the boat from England back in the United States. That's really the only record. Hmm. So this guy's off the grid, number one. Number two is the Dear Boss letters. The Dear Boss letter, they had uh, analysts look at this and the handwriting in that letter is a 97% match to H. H. Holmes' handwriting. Wow. A 97% match is... It might as well be a hundred because that is and that is exact. Yeah, it's crazy, Chris. If you were to take out a piece of paper, write a little letter to the media, and then you were to take another piece of paper, take a pen, and write that same exact letter again, it wouldn't even be a ninety-seven percent match. This is how close it was. Okay, wow. The professionals say that this was absolutely by the same hand. So at a minimum, H. H. Holmes wrote the dear boss letter. Right. Two separate linguists also looked at this letter, and they said it was most likely written by a highly educated American attempting to sound British. So again, that could be, I mean, that could be a large amount number of people, but it also includes the possibility of it being H.H. Holmes. Hmm. My personal theory, the H.H. Holmes thing is not my theory, but my theory is that H.H. Holmes, he goes to England, he's an opportunist, he takes advantage of the killings that are already happening. So you got Polly Nichols' murder, is, everyone's going crazy about it. And Annie Chapman also, everyone's going crazy about these two murders. And he says, being a killer, he says, I'm going to take advantage of this. And I think that he definitely killed victim number four, which was Catherine Eddowes, and possibly victim number three. I think he might have killed them both. In the Dear Boss letter that we believe that H.H. H. Holmes probably did write because of the handwriting, he says that in his next, the next victim he killed, he's going to take their ear. And he did actually take the ear of Catherine Eddowes. So I think that H.H. Holmes was a copycat killer who took advantage of the murders that are already going on over in England, then got on the boat and came back. And that's when he started killing people in Chicago. 
Yeah, because didn't he have like the Holmes house where he had all the traps and stuff inside of it and everything? That's a whole different yeah. podcast. We'll have to do that one some other time. <laughs> but uh, but so 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 that's your theory, Dave. Now you guys mentioned before there's a little bit of dissension in the ranks. Jesse and Rob, do you agree with Dave or do you think that that Holmes is more of a killer than than Dave does? I'm on board with Holmes. I think it's the funnest theory. Again, I think it's I think it's a bit of a reach because you know you get your American serial killer. Oh, could he have also been the one in London? You know, but then you start to look at the facts. It, it does kind of add up for everything that Dave just said. Also, they took, I think it was like thirteen eyewitness accounts, and they submitted them to I think it was the University of Michigan. And what they did there was they took these descriptions and they made these composite sketches and they ran it through their computer software. What that does is it basically generates basically a summary of all of these different composite sketches. And the image that came out was an absolute spitting image of H.H. H. Holmes. Two retired FBI professionals took a look at this and they analyzed it. And they said that they, in their entire 20-year, 25-year careers, had never seen a match this closely to a suspect. So they also believe huh. that it's H.H. H. Holmes. So the, the details keep going on. So H.H. H. Holmes is a fun one. For me... There is another one I kind of want to talk about. Robert mentioned it. We we watched a documentary. I think it's kind of horseshit, but it's worth mentioning because if these two pieces of evidence that they found are legitimate, then this is 100% Jack the Ripper. And the guy's name was Maybrick. Uh, John Maybrick. John Maybrick. So forgive me. I got to pull up my notes on this. Rob, do you want to jump into your uh, boring theory real quick while I pull it up? <laughs> boring. Boring Jeez. theory. Nice, nice uh, setup there. Boring. Wow. Dull wow. suspect, get ready to fall asleep to Rob's idea. Go ahead. Well, my theory, Chris, do you want to hear who actually was Jack the Ripper? Because it's not boring. This is the actual, definitely who did it. Let's go back to the first murder, what we talked God, about. I'm so bored already. Listen to this. God, I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were talking about the first killing, we talked about how Charles Cross came across the body first, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Robert Paul has a different account. He was the second guy that pulled up. And when Robert Paul came up, Charles Cross was already standing over the body. And he kind of waved him over. He's like, oh, come see what I found type of deal. So they go tell the cop and Charles Cross tells the police officer his name is Charles Cross. The thing is, his name wasn't Charles Cross. His name was Charles Lechmere. And Charles Lechmere lived in this area and basically lied to the cops about his name. Wouldn't come forward to have an interview until weeks later, until he was comfortable to do it. They were looking for this guy after the fact to interview him between the media and the police. And every single killing that happened lined up on his walk to work from his apartment hmm. and the time frame for when he would have been walking to work with the exception of the double murder, which is on the one night off of the week that he would have had off. So he would have been able to do whatever he wanted that night because he didn't have work. So he had more time to work that night. So it looks like between the lies actually being there. And I think the most compelling part of this whole thing is we talked about how the first victim like was kind of cut open and her bowels were protruding. I think what happened was Robert Paul walked up on him in the middle of doing this, probably threw the knife real quick. Didn't get to do the full, remove the the insides, throw it over the shoulder. Mm -hmm. I think he was in the midst of it and just basically was like, got scared through the thing and acted like he had just found her instead of running away. So I think Charles Lechmere is definitely the killer for this. The only thing that makes this a little bit more difficult, H.H. Holmes makes sense because he would have left London and that's why the killing stopped. Mm -hmm. Why did Charles Lechmere stop killing? Because usually these killers don't stop doing that. He stopped because he never started. <laughs> But he's definitely the killer, whatever. I don't know. I see no motive. There's no anatomical background. It's just some random guy who pushes a meat cart and he decides to start doing all these brutal killings. I don't Which know. allows him to be hidden because he's got the blood all over him and it looks normal because he's that's what he does for a living. So does everybody. Half the people worked in meat markets and they're all covered in blood anyways. It's just, I don't know. But you're also talking about these other suspects that are listed here. There's Aaron Kosminski. Carl Fagenbaum and Montague John Druitt. Let's talk about those guys, suspects that you believe could have something to do with it. Kosminski is kind of considered one of the favorites. Kosinski, though, the, the Russian Kosminski. Okay. Yeah. So basically, he was this Polish barber who was born in Russia. He was working as a hairdresser in Whitechapel during the murders. He was in and out of asylums. He had homicidal tendencies. He was a paranoid schizophrenic absolutely hated women. <laughs> so there was a long history of him hating women. 
and he died in a in a mental institution. So in and out of them, died in one. And there were two police officers that actually said that he was the one who did it. One of the police officers said he wouldn't name the name. After he died, his partner got his journal and wrote the name Kaminsky in the journal that that's who they believed definitely did it. And they never arrested him because by the time they got to him, he was already back in a mental asylum. Hmm. That is kind of a lot, a lot of what quote unquote ripperologist. I didn't know if you knew if that was a thing, but <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole sect of people that call themselves ripperologist. And I too am now a ripperologist. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What about uh, Fagenbaum, who actually confessed to being uh, Jack the Ripper before he was executed in New York? That sounds like a could be a possibility yeah so this was interesting and he wasn't really on the radar or if he was they didn't take him too seriously but he moved to new york and then it was a few years after he got arrested in 1894 he was renting out a room in new york basically he just up and killed the landlord one day so they they were it was basically this woman who lived there with her 16 year old son her name was hoffman she was there with her son. So basically, they had a two-bedroom apartment. They rented out one of these bedrooms to this guy who called himself Carl. And one night, the son wakes up to his mother screaming. And he looks up, and he sees Carl standing over his mother with a knife. And so he hops out a window because he doesn't have a weapon on him. And through the window, he watches as this guy, Carl, stabs his mother in the neck. Oh, wow. She gets to her feet but collapses and dies from her injuries. Carl jumps out the back window to the alleyway, but he's quickly caught and arrested. What does this random murder in New York have to do with Jack the Ripper? Well, it turns out this guy, Carl Feigenbaum, went by a different name. His name was actually Anton Lahn, or it could be Anton Zahn. That's what the newspapers reported on. Basically, he had a, a bunch of different aliases. But right before he was executed for this murder, he confessed to his lawyer that he was actually Jack the Ripper. So his exact quote was from his lawyer, according to his lawyer, was, quote, I have suffered... I have for years suffered from a singular disease, which induces an all-absorbing passion. This passion manifests itself in a desire to kill and mutilate the woman who falls in my way. At such times, I am unable to control myself. So he was actually in Whitechapel during the time of the murders. Uh, records prove that he worked there during every single date of the five murders in the East End. Hmm. It's kind of a compelling case. I mean, he's clearly a murderer, but I think the going theory is that like, it was a little too sloppy for this to be Jack the Ripper, but maybe at this point he had kind of started losing his mind and he lost self-control and maybe he did this. But he was in Whitechapel. He is a murderer. He did get executed and he is one of the only ones that actually confessed to being Jack the Ripper. So, and this is just according to his lawyer. I don't know if I buy his lawyer's story, to be honest. If I had heard it from himself and he had reported to something, but maybe his lawyer was just trying to clout chase and say like, well, actually, you know what? My client, he, he said he was Jack the Ripper. It seems so random though, right? Like, I mean, I guess like you said, clout chase, maybe he's trying to get some coverage or whatever from the media, but it just does seem kind of a random thing. Oh, by the way, he confessed he's Jack the Ripper, you know? Mm, yeah. There's always been a theory as well that Jack the Ripper was royalty and that he was in the royal family. Let's discuss that for a bit, because that's not on your list of suspects. But that's always been something that I'd always kind of read and heard as well. Yeah, this one kind of just strikes me as a case of everyone trying to route everything back to the evil royal family. You know, it just seems like it seems like it's a convenient thing. They thought it was <laughs> right. Yeah, I gotcha. One of the kids, like a what was it, a prince or whatever? One of the princes, yeah. They thought it was him. Then they're like, oh, when well, it wasn't him, they said, well, maybe it was the royal doctor, and maybe it was this guy, maybe it was that guy. It's an interesting theory. There are there are some interesting connections, as there are with all of these. But for me, it's a reach. Well, Queen Victoria was pretty vocal about wanting the killer found, too. She was noted as reaching out to the police department saying, hey, are you doing your job? Are you doing this? Have you talked to these suspects? She was very involved vocally with this case. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense unless she didn't know her son was doing it. But it would be weird for her to be that involved if her son was actually the killer. Yeah, you know, the prince was Prince Albert Victor, and 
he had a couple airtight alibis on the nights of some of the murders. He also, I believe, had syphilis to the point that he wouldn't have actually been able to do this. Yeah. So once that comes out, it's like, oh, well, if it wasn't him, it was the royal doctor doing this to cover his tracks and stuff like that. So the movie From Hell dives into this a little bit more if you've ever seen that with Johnny Depp. Yeah. So they kind of go into that. Yeah, they go into that and they go into the whole Freemason theory, which is interesting and it does have some ties. We didn't dive too much into that, so I won't go into that. Another one I do want to mention because there is one other serial killer that's on this list and that is George Chapman, also known as Sirowin and Tonowitz Klazowski. I definitely nailed that name. So (laughs) that's George Chapman. No relation to Anna Chapman, but he was born in 1865 and moved to England between 1887 and 1888. He lived in Whitechapel. He worked under another name, Ludwig Schlosky, as a barber. So you have that barber surgeon and anatomical knowledge that we talked about earlier. Uh, He ended up as a suspect as Jack the Ripper, but he was convicted of murder in three other cases. He murdered three of his wives by poisoning them to death later on. Hmm. So he earned the nickname the Borough Poisoner. Actually, Inspector Aberline, who was kind of in charge of these things around the East End, he believed that he was a strong suspect as Jack the Ripper. But you have to deal with serial killers not typically changing their MO, kind of like in this case. Like if he was the Ripper and his thing was cutting women open and throwing their organs over their shoulders and cutting off their noses, why all of a sudden is he starting to poison his wives? Mm -hmm, Right. This was the other one that allegedly almost confessed. So with this one, witnesses claim or people claim over time that when he was about to hang for these crimes, he said, I am Jack. And then boom, they dropped him and and hanged him. (laughs) So it could have been a number of things that he was about to say, but a lot of people theorize that he was just about to admit that he was Jack the Ripper. And he is a killer. He is a serial killer. He was in Whitechapel. He is a very likely suspect. In fact, he's probably one of the stronger suspects. It's just how often do killers change their MO like this and start poisoning instead of stabbing? Well, it would seem like if he's just kind of that much of a butcher, frenzied psycho, right. poisoning probably wouldn't do the trick for him. He obviously gets off and you know, cutting out women's wombs, putting a little arsenic in their uh, tea isn't really quite the same thrill now, is it? But the situation's also different as well. So I wouldn't completely rule him out over that. Like it's also not that unheard of that Serial killers change their MO. If you look at the Zodiac killer, he started off. You literally just said it's unheard of, and now you're saying it's not unheard of. No, I said not completely, but like, so if you look at the Zodiac <laughs> killer, I believe he started off shooting his victims and then he ended up stabbing his victims. Yeah. With yeah. this one, the situation also changed. It's no longer him just grabbing random sex workers off the street. Now you're talking about his wives. If his wife ends up completely carved up in the middle of his kitchen, he's like, oh, I don't know. She must have drank some bad tea. That's not going to look so good. You can't really get away with that. So maybe he changed up his method of killing because of the scenario that he was in. Eventually, he did get caught because eventually, how many of your wives can you poison with arsenic, which I believe was actually the case. So you pinpointed that. So as we start to wind down, I want to hear a little bit more about the hauntings, the notes you guys created. But it seemed to me, just to kind of answer the question that we asked earlier, that these killings stopped either because if you're dealing with the Holmes theory or with the uh, Druitt theory, or sorry, the Fagamob theory, that these guys are leaving London, leaving the country, or they are basically- uh, Dying. Dying, yeah. killing themselves or whatever it may be. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I do want to mention the one that I started to talk about earlier. Basically, in 1992, a guy named Michael Barrett came forward with what he claims was Jack the Ripper's diary. You want to talk about a boring theory? Jesse's about to hit you with one. Well, this one is compelling. Rob, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down to the supermarket. I'm going to buy a bunch of meat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put it on a cart. I'm going to wheel it to your house and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Anyways, so. <laughs> This guy Michael okay. Barrett came forward. Just make sure we get it on get it on uh, on tape so we can play it on the show. Oh no, this yeah, this is, this isn't being recorded, right? We're just chatting. <laughs> anyways, um, yeah. So, anyways, this guy came forward with what was supposed to be Jack the Ripper's diary. It was written by a guy, guy named James Maybrick, and a large chunk of pages were missing. But what was left was like detailed confessions about every single one of the murders and just what was going through Jack the Ripper's mind at the time. So this. Diary, in my opinion, is probably bullshit, but it should be mentioned because if it is legitimate, then it's this is absolutely Jack the Ripper. It's a complete admission of his crimes. So the weird thing about this diary, while it seems fake on the surface, is it has held up from what I know against forensic testing, where they dated the notebook back to the Victorian era. They said that the ink that was used on this diary stood up to the tests, and this was ink that was available at the time of the murders. It was obviously a very detailed confession of these murders. This guy, James Maybrick, actually ended up getting murdered by his wife shortly after the final kill. So that could be why the killings had stopped. And then you had another piece of evidence, which was a collector had submitted this golden watch. 
And at the time when he had it, it just seemed like there was some incoherent rambling scribbled on the inside of this watch or engraved on the inside of this watch. But when they opened it up, they had seen that there were the initials of all the Jack the Ripper victims. There was also this phrase that said, I am Jack. And then it was signed by the name Jay Maybrick, which until this diary was found, it kind of seemed like, who the hell is Jay Maybrick? But once they realized that he was tied to this Jack the Ripper diary, they're like, oh, look at this. So this one also apparently withstood some forensic testing. They said that the scratches were not fresh. They could have dated back to the time of the killings. And they found little pieces of copper that were basically lodged into this thing from whatever tool this person used to carve it. So this is allegedly Jack the Ripper's watch coming from a completely different source as this diary, both signed by this guy, James Maybrick. When you tie these two things together, it has to be like an absolute insane coincidence that both of these things would be signed by the same guy, Jay Maybrick, who was a suspect or ended up being a suspect in the Jack the Ripper killings. So if these things are authentic, this is a thousand percent Jack the Ripper. The problem is the guy that submitted it said it was a hoax. Then he said it wasn't a hoax. Mm -hmm. Then he said it was a hoax again. Then he said it wasn't a hoax again. And we're on like our seventh time of it not being a hoax. So <laughs> yes. So the issue is the issue is the source, right? right? So it's it's Michael Barrett. Again, with the watch and the diary, it's a big coincidence. So this guy, Michael Barrett, he changed his story a bunch of times. And also his origin story kind of sucked. Like, where did he get this diary? Well, his story was he just got it from a drunk guy at a bar that he became friends with. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he like kept going back to try to ask him like, hey, where'd you get this diary? It's really cool. And the guy just died. So there's there's no good origin story. We don't know where it really came from. And it's in my opinion, it's probably fake. There's one last suspect that brings us right into the hauntings to get into him. But I kind of want to know, Chris, what what is your favorite theory of who the killer is? We've told ours. Now we need to uh, make sure that we make fun of your theory when it's uncontrollably wrong. What, let, let's end off with that. We can all give okay. our theories. So what I want to do right now is just be, as we, as we, the only thing we haven't discussed as far as the ghosts go, and if there's anything else that stands out with the ladies, but <laughs> let's talk with the ghost of Jack the Ripper, because there is some sightings of that as well. So let's start off with Montague John Druid, who was an, another suspect. Basically, he lived in the area. He was seen in the area of the murders. And as soon as the last killing happened, within a few weeks, he actually killed himself in the Thames River. So that's where kind of the Jack the Ripper hauntings pick up. Yeah. So one of the one of the sightings that people see is right is on that Westminster Bridge that crosses the River Thames. People have claimed to see a figure emerge from the shadows and then throw itself over the side of the bridge into the waters below. Wow. And then when it's further investigated, no bodies show up or anything. And it's a repeat haunting. They they see it all the time. And it typically happens right around the same time that John Druitt also killed himself. So that is believed to be the ghost of, if not Jack the Ripper, it's the ghost of John Druitt. But if you believe he is the Ripper, then it would be the ghost of Jack. There was another instance in the White Hart pub on Whitechapel Street. A psychic medium once sensed the presence of a man who had, quote, a lot of hatred against women. And the name that the psychic was detecting was George. And the George that the psychic found is believed to be that of George Chapman, which was the barber suspect that became infamous for poisoning three, poisoning three of his wives. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we've pretty much uh, covered the gamut here of, of the murders, the ghosts, the theories. So yeah, let's, let's end it off. We, we, I'll, I'll answer your question now to me from doing the research that I've done. And obviously what we talked about today, it does seem that Holmes stands out to me as being, as being the most, I think Jesse said the most fun, you know, the, the, the sexiest one, yeah. just by the fact that like, once again, he created this whole murder house and it's just absolutely completely uh, a psychotic genius. So I could see him being able to pull this stuff off. And the fact that he did leave London would explain why those killings stopped in London. But then he opened up his own kill house in Chicago to continue his, you know, obsession with, with, with murdering people. So to me, that one fits the best. But I don't know if it's the, the the most believable on your guys' standpoint. So, so Dave, what do you think? Who who do you feel is the is the ripper here? I'm with you. I think that the most most of the evidence points to H. H. Holmes to being at least the killer of Catherine Eddowes. And if you believe that he 100% is the killer of Catherine Eddowes, then it's not so crazy to surmise that he killed all five and then moved back to New York, Chicago rather, and started his own killing situation. There's obviously there's holes in this theory. His mode of operations changed. He didn't, where H.H. Holmes was kind of killing for money and Jack the Ripper seemed to be killing for passion, basically. 
So you could poke some holes in it, but I just think that there's the most evidence points towards H.H. Holmes. What do you think, uh, Jesse? I think we have multiple. I, I also am on board with you guys. I enjoy the H.H. Holmes thing. I, again, I think it's a reach, but I, I think it's probably George Chapman. And But I'm going to go out here and say it's both because I actually really like the idea of H.H. Holmes. And I think there's actually the most solid evidence points at him when you deal with the handwriting and you deal with the profile and everything. So I think it does lead to him, but I think I'm going to go with multiple. I think there's multiple Jack the Rippers. I think H.H. Holmes took the opportunity to join in, but I think it was George Chapman. Oh, wow. Okay. He's a serial killer. He already killed multiple people. Again, changed up his mode, but so did H.H. Holmes. And he definitely didn't push a meat cart. What's your favorite, Rob? Well, it's Charles Cross. It just, it makes the most sense. This dude, (laughs) Jack the Ripper should have been caught multiple times, by the way. People were just too busy minding their own business people heard the second victim getting murdered against the fence and falling against the fence and they just were like up oh, i guess i'm gonna go back inside now and not see what's going on five feet away from me and i think that shows also in the first killing where charles cross was the one who found the body i think he was just standing there because he was the one who just did it and then we saw it with the third victim as well when the cart comes up and kind of scares him away the dude lived in the area. He walked these streets to work. It was on his way to work. Charles Lechmere is 100% the guy that killed them. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. And I'm sorry that you guys are all wrong, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, it's a, a great discussion. And I, I guess the, kind of the last question is, is it just been too long to ever be solved? Like they just never really got any evidence to really arrest anybody. And that's just going to go into the ethereum now forever i think at this point it probably will yeah Yeah. every couple years you get a new book that's published where they definitely found who jack the ripper was no matter what these things they they seem to fall apart after time so there's there's like dna evidence mitochondrial dna evidence against a couple of these guys but it just doesn't hold up so i'm going to hold out hope that something comes forward but unless you get a, a solid piece of actual like dna evidence that you could pull and link to somebody that is actually linked to the crime it's it's tough to say it's probably going to remain unsolved forever to be completely honest chances are we don't even know it was probably none of the suspects right it was probably just some random guy yeah, definitely wasn't rob's definitely it definitely wasn't anything <laughs> you said what are you what are you doing there? <laughs> um It was probably just some random guy in the neighborhood and we'll never even know his name. Well, guys, once again, it's great talking to you and uh, look forward to coming up with another topic. And the next time you guys will probably be so big that you won't even take my calls or emails anymore. But that's okay. We'll always have Providence. (laughs) We'll always have Providence. I've already started to forward your number to voicemail. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, guys, thank you so much. And uh, and congratulations on all your success. And I look forward to getting together again soon. Thank you, Chris. You're a legend. Thanks, man.